Good morning, good morning. My name is Andrea Simonchov, and you're listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Thank you. A big yasher koach, a big shout out of gratitude for tuning in to not just this show, but the station, and for those of you who check in and want to know authentic mindsets, authentic heartbeats, authentic truths coming out of the land of Israel. I have been overwhelmed this week um, for the good and also the not so good. People sending me articles, vorts, if you will, messages from those who do not have Israel's welfare front and center, who do not personally ache and agonize and understand the role that holy Jews play in the orbit of this world. If I get one more piece of crap from the keyboard of New York Times' Thomas Friedman, I, I, I don't know if I'll spit. Had trouble sleeping last night because I forgot. For those of you who listen to the show each week, you this is very, very personal. Not just do I share what's in my heart and what's in my belly, but I often share with you lovely bits and pieces from the letters I receive. So I don't feel that I'm going off base or off script when I say to you that I had trouble sleeping last night. Because just as last week's show was called uh, Forgetting to Remember, I had those moments, those brief moments, where I forgot to remember our strength and our centrality. Who is running the show? The happy ending that awaits despite this very precarious episode that we find ourselves in. Just remember, anything you read, whether it be from the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, the Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel, Ma'ariv, Yidiot Achronot, or Al Jazeera, Ask yourself the question, is there an agenda behind the pen? Okay, just the question. Just the question. Before we go on into our text, into the meat of today's show, let's say good morning. Let's say a hearty Boker Tov or Lila Tov to those listening in from the United States. Hi, Kathy. I hope you have toothpicks holding your eyelids open. Uh, the U.S. is listening in. And, uh, yeah, got some nice notes this week. Thank you. India is with us this morning. Good morning. Canada, my favorite friendly country in the world. you got a lot of stuff going on there in Canada. Hopefully we're going to touch upon some, some of it today. Never foreseen. 
what's happening in Canada. Stay strong, stay mighty. The Sudan is with us this morning. Austria, Australia. The Netherlands is listening in. Good morning, South Africa. I'll be with you in a couple of weeks. Please, God. And the Bahamas is with us today. Very nice. Anybody else joining us, we'll give him a shout out and very, very grateful. And let me just actually proceed and say anything in the show that piques your interest. I quote anything. I get you anywhere. I say I found something. I read something. If you want to know the source, you'd like the URL, drop me a note. Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. And happy to send you. Everything here is source based. Um, okay. One of the other reasons I realized that I had trouble sleeping last night was a friend sent me, oh, it was such a short little tape. It was a teeny tiny conversation between a speaker. They were talking about this week's rally in Washington. And the speaker was clearly a uh, an orthodox uh, Torah observant yeshiva bocher, yeshiva student, talking with Rabbi Beryl Wine, who anybody who listens to this show knows I have only the greatest esteem for. Um, I had the great merit to sit in on many of his classes and um, really an honor, an honor. If you don't know Rabbi Beryl Wine, check him out, read his stuff. Spot on. Anyway, this yeshiva student, this unnerved me, but anyway, this yeshiva student was talking to Rabbi Wine. And the reason I listened to it was because I had some pretty strong opinions about this week's rally. I must admit, I confess, I I know that my brother was there and my sister-in-law and many, many dear friends and buses came in. And we all know the story about the 300 Jews left on the tarmac, I believe, in Dulles because of anti-Semitic bus drivers. Okay, I follow up. I do my homework. Anyway, um, and from what I understand, there were between 250, 300,000 Yidin, holy Jews and friends of Jews there. And all I kept thinking, my husband and I as we're lying, watching in our bedroom, watching the television, thinking, 300,000 of you. We might not be fighting this war if you were here changing the landscape of Israel, altering the demographics, bringing your expertise and your wisdom and your good hearts and your passion and your moral centrality, living lives that you don't have to know tomorrow, but know that you're today is good and heroic. And I thought to myself, 300,000 screaming, Am Yisrael Chai, where are you? Where are you? And then I heard the words of Rabbi Wine, who took me to a different place. And he said, 300,000? There's 5 million Jews living in America. God bless those 300,000. 
Where were the others? Five million Jews? Are you gone? Off into the space of desolation, dissolution, gone forever, evaporated, just as only 20% of the Jewish people left Egypt. 80% disappeared forever. You can't forget a history that you do not know. Rabbi Wine, in this interview, made some powerful statements. First one, we've heard it already. We don't learn our lessons. We don't learn anything. There were rallies for Soviet Jewry. I know I grew up in that house. I know who our heroes were. My avowedly secular father had portraits of every refusenik plastered on our den walls. And in the yeshivas, so many were told, don't go to these rallies. You don't know who's going there. Better you should spend a little more time over your open Gemara. That's where your Torah study has to be. That's where the future of Jewish life is. Since when was it a monopoly in all or nothing? You know why? Anatoly slash Natan Sharansky, Ida Nudel, and so many more, Yosef Mendelevich. Do you know why they got out? Because there were rallies for Soviet Jewry. They got out because of the rallies. So yes, in retrospect, my passion, my desire, my complete confusion over the fecklessness of Jews who are still saying, but I may not be able to make a living in Israel. That's only one perspective. There is a perspective and a meritorious perspective that those who attended and shouted out and showed an enormous display of perhaps, in America, unprecedented Jewish pride. How do you kids know? How do you American kids know all the Hebrew words to the songs? I don't know those songs. Rabbi Wine went on to say in this interview, this little mini interview, the Jewish people are on the line. All of us. And if they are on the line, they mean Jews in the yeshiva halls in Lakewood as well. Is there a confusion about the agenda? 
The agenda is certainly that North American Jews are being persecuted. Don't fool yourself. Just because one chooses to live in a bubble does not mean that he or she is exempt. He then made a very passionate statement. He said, cancel culture? The Orthodox community has no guts. How short-sighted can we be to think that ignoring those or dismissing those or who poo-pooing those who are not as observant as we are indicates a terrible lack of insight to the past and the future. Anyone who lived, anyone today listening to this show or not, but who was alive during the, during the Holocaust, they remember what it looked like, what it tasted like, what it smelled like, and what it felt like. And guess what? It is now. Oslo? There is not an observant Jew, an Israel-centric Jew, who did not know that Oslo was a death sentence. Did they speak up? Did they rally? Did we march? Did we scream? I lived in America. I know I didn't. I and my friends, we, we, we wrung our hands and we said, this is not good. But you know what? God's in charge. We forgot. It's a partnership. In the yeshivas, they were told, don't attend the rally. Because maybe there will be a reform rabbi speaking, a lesbian rabbi speaking, a, 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 any number. Do you know what Rabbi Yisrael Salanta said? It's a quote. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta said when reform was taking hold, and he was said, they should be ignored. That, that, that horse is out of the gate. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanta answered, I would like to build a base medrash in every one of those synagogues. My friends, my friends listening in, now, today, today, or maybe 3,000 years too late, but we can start today. Today is the time to love to be one. They mean us. Take a look at your babies and take a look at your parents. Take a look at your neighbor with the mezuzah on his door. We are one tapestry, we are one fabric. And if there is a tear in the fabric, 
if the corner of the fabric marked Israel is burning, your house is on fire. That unity, that achdut, it is our only strength. It is our every strength. Um, somebody, somebody posted this. Uh, just one more thing about the rally. Um, I couldn't watch the whole rally. <laughs> it, was, it was very nice. It was, that weather, my gosh. Um, 300,000? God forbid we need another. God forbid we need another rally. But if and when that rally happens, there's 5 million Jews living in America. Provide the buses, help fund travel arrangements for every Jewish community center, every youth group, every reform temple, every Jewish lesbian homosexual center. Get them out there. Because they mean you. A police officer was asked in Washington, D.C. I love this because I know that I used to go to the Israel Day Parade and they used to say, the cops used to say that after, I think it was the New York City Sanitation Department, they said after the Israel Day Parade, they're like hard, they had like nothing to do. You know, Jews were picking up their garbage, taking their recycling, making sure they left the streets. And there were certain ethnic groups that shall be nameless, they used to say, they had to work overtime 24 hours a day for like a week to clean up after their mess. So a police officer in Washington, D.C. was asked how he found the crowd. And his response was, today I got a career's worth of thank yous in just one shift. God bless you. We are we are good. We are good. All right, so today, even though I woke up and frightened and almost forgot everything I remembered, oh my gosh, Am Yisrael, we are terrific. And that is the starting point. Um, my friend Elazar reminded me, Andrea talks about the um, America demonstrating their unshakable bond with Israel by pushing for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. You haven't seen enough dead Jews on the news? You haven't seen enough now? Qatar, our big friend, Qatar. Um, on the best day, their friendship with us is questionable, deeply dubious. They're rumored to be negotiating a release of, I'm not even going to say the number of hostages in release for a ceasefire of two days. Everyone, I don't know what my holy government is going to do. I know what I wish my holy government would do, or more importantly, not do. Um, but I don't have Navua. I don't have the gift of prophecy. But let me put it this way. Anybody who naively or maliciously is pressing Israel for a ceasefire does not want us to win this war. 
There's absolutely no reason to stop now. Whether or not the Red Cross has refused to visit the hostages or Hamas has not permitted the Red Cross to visit the hostages is completely moot. The fact is, and I shudder when I say this, we don't even know if they're still alive. But any negotiation for a partial release is simply a psychological tactic, something that they excel in, or an attempt by Hamas to buy time. Please, please, do not pressure the thinking under enough stress. Our lives are in their hands, Israeli government, to enact a ceasefire. What can you do, listening in from the United States, India, Canada, Sudan, Austria, Australia, Netherlands, South Africa, and the Bahamas? Okay. Keep buying Israeli products. Keep donating to reputable organizations to help our soldiers. Keep providing funds to make sure that the displaced have a roof over their heads. And keep praying. Okay, a lot of talk this week. A lot of talk this week about Shifa Hospital. I keep wanting to say, anybody who's a Hebrew speaker or Bible-centric, I'm sure that I'm not the only one wanting to say Shifra Hospital. Uh, Shifa Hospital in Gaza. By the way, anybody find it interesting? I mean, Gaza is like as big as a postage stamp. Um, and there were 35 hospitals in Gaza. Do you know why? Anybody confused? Anybody not know yet why there are 35 hospitals in Gaza? That's because if you are Hamas, you call a weapon a weapon arsenal, weaponry arsenal. You just put you call it a hospital. You call it a hospital, and you get a lot of funds from the UN. You get a lot of funds from humanitarian agencies, and people think that you're very noble. Thirty-five hospitals, and anybody who's really sick in Gaza does everything in their power to come to Israel for treatment. Um, Let's see, we're not going to read this reporter's report, although it is fantastic. Hold on, I have too many pages. Stay with me here. I finished the coffee. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the Shifa Hospital, let me just see this. Wait a second. <laughs> I'm all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know who's really being very, very helpful? very, very good and helping injured Gazans and injured babies. And um, it's Israel. It's totally Israel. Israel provided incubators. We, with those who are sworn to kill us, we've provided incubators. We have helped evacuate any newborn babies from the hospital. Um, I'm looking here. We have provided, you know, I have to tell you, I have this feeling, and you can yell at me if I'm wrong. I really don't think we're doing this war thing very, very well. We're not doing it like other countries. Israel. We are providing safe passage for between two to four hours every day 
We're not just saying go, go to safety. We're escorting them. When we see that they're going the wrong way, let me just see. I had an actual quote. Let's just see. What was the quote? Ah, yeah, this is great. Um, Sahal, the IDF, they published an audio of officers telling the, Ga- the, Gazan, the Gaza hospital staff how to evacuate southward. Does anybody hear the forehead slap? Here goes. You heard it? The forehead slap. The IDF published a recording of calls between a senior officer uh, and the coordinator for government activities in territories office. It's called COGAT. And the hospital staff in the Shifa, Rantisi, and Nasser hospitals in northern Gaza, three hospitals, instructing them how to safely evacuate toward the southern part of the Strip in Arabic, beautiful Arabic. And they've been able to leave the three hospitals either by foot or in ambulances after we, us, Sahal, secured the routes that lead to the Salah Adin Road, which serves as a humanitarian corridor for several hours during the day. I can't believe I'm actually reporting this. Direct quote, anyone who wishes to move from the hospital um, and toward the hospital I don't know what that means. Al-Wakhta Street, east of the hospital, is open. Uh, there are no Israeli forces on the eastern side of the hospital. <sighs> A Hamas cache of weapons, explosives, discovered in every one of these hospitals, discovered in the kindergarten. Yeah. Um. So just in case you don't know, just in case you're only counting on this show for your information, you've got the facts where they are. Um, This week, well, there have been a lot of, um, not diplomatic, excuse me, I'm losing the the English, the Hebrew, Um, news junkets. Somebody said to me, a lot of people have been talking, those of us here in Israel, we have not seen the pictures. Many of you listening in have seen photographs far worse than the ones that I've seen. But even those of us who haven't seen the photographs, we've seen enough. Just the act of avoiding the photographs and the tapes, the videos, allowed us glimmers, glimpses, sound bites. The word atrocity does not, does not do justice to the, monst- the monstrous events of October 7th and afterwards. Journalistic junk. Yeah, it's journalistic um, junkets. So I don't know how they've been arranging this all over the world. But um, in just an hour this week, for some somehow the um, Sahal, the IDF, gave permission for a small number of international journalists to actually go into Gaza. I don't have the date of this. It was maybe three days ago. Um to see full scale, to really get an idea, a perspective of the war that Israel is waging against the terrorists of Hamas. And I say this again, in a completely 
defensive war. And the journalists entered through the same part of the fence that the terrorists had actually broken through on Shabbos morning, October 7th, Simchas Torah. Um, everywhere they went, these journalists, who I'm sure many didn't even want to go, but they kind of felt the moral obligation, um, they went in. And in one of the first vi- vi- villages they came to, it had been completely destroyed by the fighting. But the Israelis found in this destroyed village, um, they, that's where they first found, or at least on the 7th, the morning of the 7th, the enormous vastness of the underground tunnel network. Um, and there is a belief, I don't know if there's been an update since then, that many Many of our captives, if not all of them, are being held within these labyrinths, these labyrinths that are beginning to lose oxygen. Um, So many of the tunnel entrances still to this day are booby-trapped. Just take a minute. Think. If you need to, listen to this again on podcast to go over the enormity of what we were talking about. Um, they had, these reporters had with them several detonation experts and they actually winced when they saw the dynamite um, at the entrance of a tunnel and these reporters were allowed to stand back and see it blown up. My friends... They shut, you know, this week I sent a, somebody sent to me and I sent to people, it was a, um, it was actually a video. And anybody who writes to me, Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com, I'll send you this video of just an example of one of these tunnels. Now the tunnel that I sent, it's several minutes long, this video of our heroic um, military going into this tunnel. And this tunnel happens to be up north. And they take you all the way through. And when you see in this northern tunnel the depth of sophistication, of professionalism, of indeed expertise, my my immediate reaction was, my gosh, if they are capable of doing that, to such levels, such mass, such massive efforts, such massive blueprints, such massive brain work. How twisted are you not to have used those same gifts in building a brilliant contributing society? These reporters saw the base, the base of evil that resulted in a one-day slaughter. Slaughter isn't enough of a word. Butchery of Israelis in one day. The largest massacre of Jews since the Shoah. We do not intend to let them forget. We do not intend 
to allow them to to remain in Gaza. We do not intend to allow them to fester and breed and spread 1,400, 1,400 in one day. How many Americans is that in one day? Put this in your pipe. One morning, imagine 54,000 Americans slaughtered in one morning. Now encourage us to put in a ceasefire. Israel has three objectives. There's three objectives. Allow safe passage. Allow safe passage. I'm not so thrilled with this this objective, but nobody called me. To allow safe passage for innocent Palestinians. That's a quote. Do what you want with that. Who don't want to get caught up in the war. The second is to prevent Hamas terrorists and their leaders from getting themselves away from the local population. I don't even know what this means. They're already there. They're already in Qatar. They're already on their billion-dollar jets. And the third is to avoid any of the 240, 250, who's left, who's alive, being taken deeper into Gaza along this route and getting them home. Enough. You get it. Gaza's a ghost town. It's houses all burnt up or blown up. Children. Most of the victims are children. But don't you forget for one moment who this is on. And I say this because you will not be reminded of this. Because we are now under additional siege, additional siege from your governments, the governments of you friends who are listening in, for us to lighten up, impose a ceasefire. We should provide the humanitarian aid. Understand, again, they mean you. It's a ghost town because this is what they have brought upon themselves. Okay, I was just reminded, absolutely, you know, I I almost choked on the word, the innocent Palestinians. I can't. I can't. Even if they did not pick up a knife and pick up a gun and pick up an axe and pick up a fire torch... The concept of being responsible for one another has not quite landed, has not landed on the Arab dinner plate. For every woman, I can speak as a woman, because last time I looked, I still was one. As a woman, if my man committed my son's future dreamed of having a son who is a shaheed, a martyr? Good luck, man, ever touching me again. 
or finding dinner on the table. And for those of you who will say, yeah, but you know, Arab society, he might kill her. They have nothing on us when it comes to martyrdom. We know, we know historically what we women have given ourselves to in the con continuation of Jewry. So please, Gazans are terrorists. I'll say it again, Gazans are terrorists. And until you prove me otherwise, I stand by my statement. Okay, um, Canada, Canada, we're not going to talk about, I mean, I think it was last week, a Canada University um, students were under siege, attacked. I don't quite have the note in front of me right now. But just last week, a Canadian Jewish school was hit with gunfire, a third one. What is going on? Jewish school in Montreal was hit with gunfire early this past Sunday morning, the third time in less than a week that a Jewish school in that Canadian city was hit amid heightened tensions over the conflict between Israel and Gaza. What is going on? You know what is going on. The fact that no one was injured is a miracle. It's a bracha. And it is not the point. Intent. I'm going to ask you again. At least tell me. Tell your brothers and sisters who are manning the front lines in Israel that you are having the conversation even though it makes me wince to think that in the year 2023 you waited this long to Shabbos afternoon at Sudashli Sheet or watching your son's soccer game, you turn to one another and say, maybe now is the time to consider moving to Israel. We are here. The Israel that is waiting for you is an Israel that did not exist, did not exist in my day prior to Nefesh Benefesh, and certainly did not exist in 1929, in 1935, in 1948, in 1963. Talk about a soft landing. Look at your children and try to find the defense in staying one more day. Okay, we're not going to talk today about my favorite creep, Barack Obama. I know not a popular, not a popular sentiment among friends. Just before we go to our wonderful Devar Torres, yeah, yeah. We're the ones keeping the gods and babies alive, just so that you know. Um, stay with me. Oh, okay. So let's just, let's just, before, let's, oh my gosh, it's almost Shabbos. I'm feeling better, feeling better just speaking with you today. It's great. Um, let's talk a little bit. What can we do? What can I do? There are all kinds of opportunities. I think I mentioned last week that it is so phenomenally humbling 
the outpouring, the incredible outpouring of volunteerism, both in Israel, from those who are living here and those who are coming to be volunteers. Uh, before I give kudos to those who are coming, I just want to say, I really, I'm having a hard time finding anybody in my social circle, except for me, actually, who has not been out picking plants, har helping harvest tomatoes and strawberries and cucumbers and lemons and just have going into the fields, people picking, helping. I understand. I don't have the number. My husband kind of mentioned it at dinner that um, thousands and thousands of Indian workers, non-Muslim Indian workers, are going to now be earning their living coming in to Israel. Yeah. When Arabs start talking a little bit more about not having any work on you. Anyway, um, everyone I know is doing something fantastic, living here, really harvesting the fields, working. It's beautiful. Friend, I have a friend who, I mean, double knee replacement, can barely move. So they sat her in a room and she was packaging hot peppers and tomatoes for sale in local markets. There's something for everyone to do who's living here. Don't wring your hands and say, I wish there was something I could do. The biggest challenge is trying to pick through the plethora of opportunities. Um, let's see. We had a big brouhaha about, let's say, really adorable cowboys from Montana and Arkansas who came. Group of firefighters, Jewish-American firefighters, came this past week to help and had their first Shabbos dinner in the firehouse. And they got a front seat, a front row view of what happens when you're having Shabbos dinner and the alarm goes off. And um, one of the things that most of the volunteers have spoken about is how much they're being encouraged to keep eating. Do you have enough to eat? That everybody here is like a Jewish grandma, let's just say. Um, photographs, fire help, come, doctors. Here's a lovely doctor from Miami, one among hundreds volunteering um, on the front line as an ER, I mean, as an emergency trauma doctor, investors cooking for troops, on and on. Write me a letter, Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com, and I will send you a list of places to volunteer. Oh, I was in the supermarket the other day. Not, a, not an easy experience here in Israel to be in the supermarket, especially one of the less expensive ones. And... Um, a bunch of seminary girls, three seminary girls that were, you know, that were on the line in the supermarket and doing the requisite selfies. It was like a little nauseating until I asked them, I said, so are, what school are you? And they said, well, school hasn't started yet. We don't know when it's starting. And they were buying all this stuff. And I said, oh, so you're sharing an apartment. They said, well, we're actually, we started playgroups in our neighborhood and we're babysitting. Uh, we're babysitting for free. For families of evacuees so just and and they just talk about and one girl said to me you know volunteering is i found it that it's cheaper than therapy just wanted to share that with you um okay we'll get to this part later this was very nice uh later i think next week we're going to start the show talking about what we can do when we're nervous came across a nice checklist, but I'm watching the clock and there's things that I want to really share with you. The first thing I want to share with you 
before we get into really Torah dick, something that all of us, whether we're Jewish, not Jewish, but one of the greatest lessons that we can take away from this episode we're going through right now is I said before that I don't have Navua, I don't have foresight, I don't have the gift of prophecy. But that is not necessarily a minus. You know, how many of us wish, say, I wish I knew how this would turn out. I wish I knew what my health was going to be. I wish I knew when I was going to financially. Start. A friend just said this to me, posted this. She said, start embracing the uncertainty in front of you. Don't let not knowing how it will end keep you from starting. Uncertainty chases us out into the open where life's true magic is waiting. We know how the war is going to end. Basically. We know we will win. For those who want to make a joke, we'll have a new holiday where we'll get to eat. Um, we'll fast on the 7th of October forever, and then we will. But joking aside, we know who's in charge. We know we will triumph because that's God's promise. The price in human terms, it's already been unbearable. But the uncertainty of not knowing where we stand, please, and especially to my fellow Jews, don't sit on your hands. You've been given a blueprint. It is never too old to start embracing the Sabbath, embracing at least flirting with the dietary laws, embracing Ahava, and learning more and more about the blessed, moral, holy country called Israel that not just belongs to you, but is waiting for you. Okay. Those of you who have sons and daughters and husbands and wives who pick up a Siddur, a Jewish prayer book, and pray every day, may not be surprised. You see part of the part of the prayer is they pick up a coin, you pick up a coin, we have a big basket of 10 agarot pieces. I don't even know what the, the equivalent is in, maybe it's a penny. And we put it in a tzedakah box, a charity box, and then we begin our prayers. Is that the cost of a prayer? 10 agarot? One dime, a nickel, a penny? God in heaven, Hashem, not like earthly kings. You know, if you give a magnificent gift to an earthly king, you're not exactly certain your gift is going to be accepted. And even if this king accepts your gift, you're not exactly certain whether you will be granted an audience with the king. And yet, to see the king of kings, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be he, all you have to do is give a small coin for the poor. Or give it right in the poor hand, 
or put it in tzedakah box. It is written in the Torah, quote, after I have done righteousness, I shall see thy face. Truly affordable, my friends. This is why one first gives a small coin before he prays. I thought you'd like to know that in the why do we do this section. Okay, this week's Torah portion, Toledot, presents a great philosophical question. We're told very often, well, I could do what I want. I have free will. So it behooves the question, is a person born with complete free will or are we born with inherent good or evil tendencies? Now there's a question. Esav, Esau, is it said Esau in English? Esau and Jacob? Um, Isaac, Esau, I don't know. Was Esav evil when he was inside his mother's womb? You know, we can gather, yeah, we can gather that we, we know that he rejected Torah and wanted instead to follow the baselessness of idol worship. But we're taught, we're taught sin crouches at the door from the time a child is born. So the question is, is it at birth that the Yetzirah, uh, that's our, how you say, evil inclination, enters the child? Or can a child be born evil? Now, I know I know the vernacular. I know how parents talk. I know how we sit around in playgroups with our frustrations. But listen up. If a child can be born evil, a person can't be held accountable and be punished for the evil he will eventually do in life. Isn't that right? Now, on the, you know, on the opposite hand, if a person is programmed before birth to be good, why should he be rewarded for the good he does in his lifetime? He's, he's a good guy. That's what he does. He does good. So returning to Esau, the answer has to be that he was neither evil in his mother's womb, nor was he born evil. So how do we explain his actions? All of us are born. We're not born. We're not clones of one another. We all have certain inborn traits. Uh, we say in Hebrew, we have a teva, a nature. Yaakov, Jacob, was born with the nature to be drawn to spirituality. Um, it came easy for him. I know any of you listening in, any of you Jewish <laughs> yeshiva parents, have the kids, we have the same kids, and you have one kid, can't wait to open up that chumash, that five books of Moses, and the other one, it's pulling teeth, he's got to go out and play racquetball or something. Um, you know, why can't you be more like your brother? So, um, Esav, you know, had a nature that he appreciated the material, which more importantly, he was very, very impressed with the shallow, which is superficial. He didn't care about the depths of the matter. For an example, on the day that Avraham dies, Esau was more impressed by the redness, the rich color in his bowl of lentils and the need to fill his belly. The significance of the death of his grandfather and the repercussions of the act of actually selling his birthright 
was completely meaningless to him. In fact, the Midrash tells us that for 13 years, Yaakov and Esau, they went to the same school, the same yeshiva. They attended the same classes. And upon reaching the age 13, Shana Bar Mitzvah, Yaakov, he turned to the base medrash, to the house of study. While Esav, who had really only a very superficial interest in Torah, turned towards his desire or nature to enter a house of idol worship. That could be anything. But understand, it was not the act of an evil person. Rather, he was motivated by a desire to validate what he worshipped, since for him, only the superficial was important. Esau's nature was not concerned with deep thought and eternal values, but only with the mundane and superficial. The name of this week's Parsha, Toldot, Toldot, is taken from the opening verse of the Parsha. These are the Toledot, the offspring and the generations of Yitzchak. It's understandable that this Parsha, this portion should be named. Do I have to keep saying Parsha? And then it's like, you guys are fluent in Hebrew already. Okay. That the Parsha should be named and remembered as the Parsha of Toledot, since this is the key operative word. However, there are a series of similar words that begin Parshas Noah. You know, remember the Torah portion of Noah? These are the Toledot of Noah. And yet that Torah portion is not Toledot, but it's called Noah. So for the sake of consistency, either our portion, shouldn't this portion be called Yitzchak? Or the portion of Noah should be called Toldot also, because the subject matter is the same. Not a wasted word in Torah. Every word, every period, every comma is rife with meaning. And here we learn a very important lesson. Both Noah and Yitzchak had righteous, admirable offspring. Noach had Shem and Yitzchak. Oh, excuse me. Noach had Shem. Um, what is it? Punctuation is important. And Yitzchak had Yaakov. Shem and Yaakov. But they both also had children that were less righteous. Noach had Ham and Canaan. And Yitzchak had Esav. Yet there was a fundamental difference between Noach and Yitzchak. Rabbi Wine points out that Yitzchak, Isaac, possessed a heritage to transmit to Yaakov. The blessings that he bestowed upon his son were those that he received from his father. Getting the hint? Generational? His father, Avraham. It's heritage, family, national memory and traditions that create toldot, a continuity, a connection to generational bonding and unity. Noach, he didn't have that background. He was a righteous guy, but he still was an individual. It says, 
Rak Noach, only Noach, Noach alone. He didn't see himself in a role as being a nation builder. He didn't possess a father who imbued within him a sense of tradition, nationhood, mishpocha, family. Avraham, on the other hand, was described by God as someone who would create a nation after him that would follow Hashem's ways, follow the commandments. It was this heritage that Yitzchak received. He was also engaged not only in creating individuals as Noah did, but Yitzchak created Toldot, national, eternal generations. He created people, bore children that would continue a heritage and a holy tradition that he himself had received. This is why Yitzchak's Parsha is named Toldot, while Noach's portion remains in his name alone. The Torah emphasizes this point by immediately describing Yitzchak as being the son of Avraham, whereas in the Parsha of Noach, the name of the father of Noach, it doesn't even appear. The Jewish people as a whole has toldot, even as individual Jews may or may not be so blessed. Take that in a moment. We Jews as a whole, we are connected. The phrase, it has nothing to do with me, does not hold Jewish water. The toldot of the Jewish people are based upon shared memory, shared history, Torah observance, a sense of mission, and indeed, achdut, national unity, the threat of idealism, of helping others, goodness, compassion, having skin in the game. In short, the blessings of our father, Avraham Avinu, run through our Jewish story again, again, forever and ever. You know, we often think that material goods and wealth are the stuff of human inheritance while we're talking about Yerusha's inheritance, that which we get from those who came before us. But actually, all the obsession with the material goods, it's a false reading. What really counts, what really matters, are the ideals and the beliefs and the traditions of holiness and godly service that are the true heritage of Israel. It's the only guarantee that the people of Israel will always have toldot. In kind of tying up the beginning of the show and the end of this blessed morning together, someone wrote to me and it said and said that for those of us who are focusing on clearing our generational trauma, we shouldn't forget in the process to claim our generational strengths. 
our ancestors of whom we speak so often on this program, they gave us a lot more than only wounds. We who have the schut, who have the merit to be alive and in a position to participate in the world around us, must recognize that we were given also resilience, morality, inner wisdom, and membership to the greatest nation, the chosen nation. But inheritance, that Yerusha, mustn't be a given. First, we have to learn to acknowledge, to appreciate, and by accepting these gifts, use the gifts that we've been given and build for the generations to come. Because being chosen includes being responsible. Shabbat Shalom, Umivorach from Jerusalem. <laughs>